you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right in front of you, a little black pew Bible. You can take that with you today. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give that to you. Genesis chapter 1, and as you turn there, I want to point out as well, you should have gotten a green card in your bulletin, and we're starting in just a couple of weeks here, our winter trimester groups. So we have a couple of gospel communities that are going to be offered online for those who'd like to connect uh, online during the the week. And then there's going to be midweek gatherings, what we call our our classes that we teach here uh, during the middle of the week. And so those will be on Wednesday nights, several different options for you. There, I'd love to encourage you, if you've been here and you've kind of been uh, getting involved somewhat or uh, just checking things out, to sign up for one of these classes to Uh, get more involved and to to meet more people and um, the opportunities are there for you. You can sign up by hovering your phone over this card and signing up online. You can also sign up on our website or if you just want to grab that card that's in front of you, just write the name of the class, your name and your email and that will be sufficient to sign you up. But do sign up for those soon so we can have a good count, especially for the Wednesday night gatherings. We're very glad to have you this morning. Uh, My name is Gray. I am the pastor of this church, and we're beginning today uh, a new series in the the book of Genesis. We're going to start looking at the scriptures from the very beginning, a daunting task. And this morning, we're just, just going to read the first three verses and talk and introduce this whole book to us this morning. And then next week, we'll be diving into things like creation days and the creation of the world, but let's look at the first three verses in Genesis chapter 1 and read these together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning, the beginning of everything, and it's really hard, as you might imagine, to know how you begin at the beginning. There is so much in these opening chapters of Genesis, there's so much that we need to learn, orient ourselves around, and it's really hard to know how to make a beginning. Studying the story of everything, the reason why we're here, the reason for our very existence, the story of the Scriptures, the purpose of our lives, it's all here, and it begins here in Genesis chapter 1. The beginning. Beginning is the very first word. The word is Genesis there. You may not see it as Genesis. You may have always wondered why it's called Genesis. But Genesis is just what's now an English word. That's a translation from a Latin word. That's a translation from a Greek word. That's a translation of the very first word, Bereshith in Hebrew. Beginning. This is where it started. The whole story of Scripture. And as we approach that this morning, we begin to talk about the Scriptures as a whole, the whole story of God. 
I think it can be helpful to orient ourselves around how this book is actually put together because if you're like me, sometimes when you read the Scriptures, maybe you've started reading a Bible plan, it's, it's January after all, and, and you're still full of starry hope and enthusiasm as, you've, as you start in Genesis again and again, and maybe as you read Genesis, uh, it feels like kind of the way that you feel when you read other parts of Scripture, it seems to be a bunch of random stories that are kind of strung together, and sometimes you can see the connection from the previous thing, and sometimes you can't, and it seems like there's lists of names, and there's historical events, and it seems very random when you put it, uh, when you pick up the scriptures to read it. But what I want you to see is, and maybe to look for just a second about the biggest picture that we can look at in Genesis, this book is not random. It is a work of art that has been compelling and beautiful to every generation since it has been written. It's an it's a amazing, amazingly structured and beautiful book. And just I want to give you a visual for this as we start so that you can know where we are as we go in the story. If you think about Genesis as one big box that is full of little boxes And all of those boxes, these stories, these lists, they fit together in very predictable patterns. And so as you read it, you can understand more and more of what the story is actually saying. And so the biggest box is the book of Genesis itself, this story, the beginning story. But within that box, there's two big boxes that make up the two big sections of Genesis. That is Genesis 1 through 11. That's the first block. And Genesis 12 through 50, Genesis 1 through 11 is the primeval history. It is the story of origins. It is the story of the beginning of the world. And then the story changes and the second block is 12 through 50. And that's the story of Abraham, the patriarchs, how God moved from this big picture primeval history to this family. And through that family, he blessed the whole earth out of which Christ came and all of redemption came in that second block that continues on to the rest of the story. Well, within those two blocks, there's even smaller blocks. There's ten what we would call generations of. That's the translation of a word, toledot. In Genesis, there's two sections, and within those two sections, there's ten toledots. There's ten places where it begins a new section. These are the generations of. As you read the story, whenever you see that, you know that you're in a new mini-section. Amazingly, within that, within the ten stories, the ten generations, five of them are stories of people, and five of them are what we call genealogies. Five are, you might think about it as pushing play or pushing fast forward. As you come to these are the generations of and you see a genealogy, that is a list of names and -and so-and-so begat, so-and-so and and begat. It's fast forwarding. It's showing you the passage of time. And then it pushes play again and it says these are the generations and it tells a story of an individual life. To get even more focused within the book, within this first section, which is going to be our study for the next few months, Genesis 1-11, through 11, the primeval history of everything. Within that, 
there are five stories. The Garden of Eden, the Cain and Abel story, the sons of God and the daughters of men story, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And actually within those five stories, each of the stories have four parts predictably. The four parts are sin, speech, grace, and judgment. There is a sin. Think about the story of the Garden of Eden. The sin that comes into the world. This leaving God and taking the forbidden fruit. There is a speech by God. He says, cursed are you. He curses the ground. He curses the serpent. He curses the woman and man. There's grace. He covers them with animal clothing. Preserves their life. And then there is judgment. He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And if you look at the first five stories of the Scriptures that fit within this first section, they all follow that exact same pattern. And just to begin to blow your mind a little bit, that story narrative in itself, each one of those four parts of each one of those five stories of the two parts of the book of Genesis, each one of them, in a sense, contains the story of the world, doesn't it? Sin. Speech, grace, judgment. The sin, the drama of Scripture that we fell from God's good, loving care. The speech that God threw out the Old Testament story through prophets and priests and kings and judges speaks to His people. Grace. Jesus Christ comes into the world. And gives grace. And we're in an age of grace where we turn to Christ and we live in, in reconciliation with God. And then, in the end, there is judgment. What I'm trying to show you this morning is this. Genesis is a work of art. It is an amazing capturing of everything that we need to understand the story that God has put us in. It is a perfect book. And it's a delight to come to it and try to make a beginning, try to understand this whole world that we're living in. It's such a huge task. And the reason why it's so huge, I've wrestled with this these few weeks in preparation for this, is because I know that all of us are in different places as we come to it. Those of you who come here often probably get tired of me referencing Wendell Berry, the great novelist. However, I will continue to do so. Um, Jaber Crow, an amazing book. Jaber Crow, probably one of his finest works. And in, in that story, Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry writes about the barber of Port William. Jaber Crow is a barber, and that's his life's work. And there's really three stages to Jaber Crow's life. And in a sense, the, the stages of his life are set over and against the stages of his faith in God. And so he first, he grows up. He grows up in Squires Landing, Kentucky. And as he grows up, he's near the river. The river in, this, in the book is 
the picture of God. It's God's presence, the river that sometimes flows and is mighty and is overwhelming, but regardless is always there. That becomes the theme of the book, the river. Returning to the river is a return to faith. And so he grows up near the river, but then he becomes an orphan. And he goes to an orphanage, and there he learns the Bible stories. It's a Christian orphanage. And he begins to have a faith in God and maybe even sense a call to ministry. And so he starts to grow up. That's the first phase of his life. But then he goes into the second phase of checking out. He begins to realize that he has questions about faith. He wonders about things. He doesn't know how the Bible can say, love your enemies on the one hand, and yet talk about war on the other hand. He has questions about how God can hold us responsible if He's in control of all these things. And so he has all of these questions and then he leaves his calling to ministry. He leaves and goes further away. And his purpose is to get as far away from the river as possible. That river that's back in his hometown that he wants to get away from and he leaves it. And he tries to go. Jaber is a nickname. His actual name is Jonah. If you know the story of the one who left the calling of God and ran away. But through a series of circumstances, he enters the third phase and he starts to return home. And when he starts to back into the town where he grew up, or near where he grew up, the, the river is raging. In a sense, God is calling to him. There's this storm. And he goes out onto a bridge and he looks at the river and all the things that are floating past. And then in that moment, the words of Genesis 1, 1-3 come to him. And he says that he believes this again. The earth was formless and void. And darkness on the surface of the waters. And he says this, After all my years of reading and believing and disbelieving in that book, I seem to have found myself back at the beginning. Not just of the book, but of the world. He returns back to the river and lives there for the rest of his life. He returns to his faith. He realizes what T.S. Eliot says in the Four Quartets. It's a great poem. We shall not cease from our exploration, and at the end of all of our exploring, we'll be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. We may experience that in a different order than Jaber Crow, but I think that those stages of belief are often true of us, and it's important to recognize when we come to the book of Genesis, to the beginning, when we return to the beginning, where are we? I'm not sure where you are. You may just be growing up. You may be a child, and you have not studied the book of Genesis before. You don't even know these stories, and so you need to see with the eyes of faith for the first time these, these passages of Scripture and what God did in the beginning. That's maybe may where you are. Maybe you're a child. Maybe you are new to your faith. Brand new. Perhaps you're checking out. And the magnitude and the mystery of how all of this could be this story, how eternity works, how a beginning exists, questions about science and faith, questions about whether this is 
one of many interpretations of the beginning of the world, whether it's just true or if it's one of the truths, things that you're wrestling with. Maybe you are hanging by a thread and you need or you think you need proof for an existence in this God so that you can trust Him again. Perhaps you are returning home or you have returned home and some of those questions and mysteries, they're still there. They never leave you as it never left Jaber Crow. He still had questions till the day he died. But he lived near the river. And you've come to a place of acceptance even in the mystery. That's a lot of different places for us to be. And there's no way that we can continually speak to everyone all the time, but I'm trying to be mindful that that's where we are. That many people are in different places when it comes to this. But I know this for a fact as we look at these first three verses this morning, that no matter which stage of your faith journey you are in, each of those stages has chaos, and each one of those stages has a desire for order. And that is, in fact, what God does on the most basic level. The very first verses of Scripture give us this truth about God, that He makes order out of chaos. And the way that He does that is by inserting Himself into the chaos. He puts Himself in the midst of the void in order to bring order to the world. And we need to see that that is His defining action. And we have a defining temptation when we come to this Scripture and we just come to our lives to think that our lives begin first and foremost with us, with our perspectives, with our truth, with our understanding, and then try to figure out where God fits into that. That is a strong temptation in our culture to put ourselves at the center of the story and then try to understand God. But that is in fact the opposite of what we see here. In fact, even some Christian what we call apologists, those who defend the Christian faith can be guilty of this when they look at these passages of Scripture and they can say that what we see here is proof for God. Reason and intuition Culture and science and faith and all of these things, they prove the existence of God. They don't. You need to see that the Bible begins not with an argument. It doesn't begin with an argument. It begins with a given. With a truth. With an assertion. In the beginning, God. Four words in English, two in Hebrew, Bereshith Elohim. Just in the beginning, God. It's not an argument. It's a statement. It's a given. One that you can accept or reject, of course. But it's one that the Scriptures presents to us. And just with the time remaining as we're introducing this this morning, I want us to look at two things from these three verses as we try to make a beginning. And here's the main point I want us to see. The inescapable truth of the world, the Bible, and our very existence. How's that for a big picture? (laughs) The inescapable truth of the world, the Bible, and our very existence is that God is there and He is not silent. 
God is there, and He is not silent. I wish I had written that originally. I did not. Some of you know the author, apologist, philosopher, pastor Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. And I can't improve on that. That is the summary of verses 1 through 3. God is there and God is not silent. That is the most essential beginning that we can make. First, God is there. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the subject of the first chapter of the first book of the whole Bible. He is the subject. God is mentioned 35 times in these first 34 verses of chapter 1. Inescapably, the book that we're looking at is about God. Derek Kidner, commentator, says this, to read the Bible with any other primary interest other than God is the subject, to read the Bible with any other primary interest is to misread the Bible. We can do this, can't we? We can study the Bible lots of different ways. We can study the Bible as a cultural phenomenon. We can study it as a scholarly work. We can study it as an ancient Near Eastern text. We can study the Bible as an oppressive male patriarchy. We can study the Bible as a book of inspirational quotes. We can study the Bible as a leadership manual. And many of those things have important principles that we can draw from Scripture, but if the starting point is not to discover who God is, then we misread the Bible. God is the subject. It's inescapably about God. Do we have a part in the story? Yes, we do. It's the second part. We come in as bearers of God's image. But we have to see this. We fit into the story of God. God does not fit into the story of us. In the beginning, God created. And this is where we need to recognize our historical moment where we actually live right now in the 21st century. For much of of the history of the world, just in broad swaths, for the first 1,600 years after Christ, and even before that, the ancient world accepted God as a given, and we lived under Him. This is just speaking in such broad terms. But around the 1600s, often a a movement identified with a guy named René Descartes, he taught as a philosopher that the, the essence of the mind or the essence of what we can know is thought. So we have the famous cogito, I think, therefore I am. It begins with myself and therefore I can reason back to things. And so as long as you can think, then you can know. And I'm simplifying a very complicated topic here. But Descartes introduced this. Now his purpose was not to destroy anything. He was actually trying to prove the existence of God. He was a Catholic. He wanted to prove that God existed. That it was reasonable to trust in God by thinking and then going back. Well, my reason tells me this and this and this, and therefore it leads to an idea of God. And then the Christian God is this way, and it's all very reasonable. Unknowingly, though, he set the stage for a change in human history where 
humanism and a focus on what we can know became the dominant focus of thought. The ancient people would never have said, I think, therefore I am. They would say, God is, therefore I am, or I do, or whatever it is that they would do. God is not an argument in Scripture. We have to return to that ancient way of seeing it. God's not an argument. He is an existence that we give our lives to. He is there. In the beginning, God is. Where is He? He's in the midst of chaos. In the nothingness, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God is in the nothing, formless and void. Rhyming phrase in Hebrew, tohu vavohu. It's really fun to say. Tohu vavohu. Tohu. Trackless. Wilderness. Nothingness. No roads. Vohu. A void. Emptiness. This is a place of no development. And in this nothingness, there is something called the deep. The face of the deep. What is the deep? The deep is the primeval ocean. It is waters. We'll talk about this more a little next week, but the creation story has us pictured in a poetic way. God creating by separating the waters. By inserting the creation between the deep. So the ancients had the idea of the water above and the water beneath. And in between was this globe of the earth. And so you can think about like a snow globe, like one of those that, that, that's purely round, but one that it has the dome, right, in the flat part that sits on a table. And it's like God inserted creation in the midst of the chaos, created a dome above the sky so there was water above and water beneath. And we'll talk about that somewhat next week. But here we see that God inserts Himself into the chaos. He is there. And He brings order to the chaos. If God is, then who is He? We need to see some things that He is and some things that He is not that are, always, that are already evident here in the first couple of verses. There are some things to believe and some things to reject. Very quickly, those who have not studied this before who are young in their faith, you need to know some things about God. Number one, God is eternal. In the beginning, God. That means that there is a separation from God and the beginning. Everything we know to be the beginning, God was there. He brought about the beginning. He is eternal. God is what we call self-existent. Meaning, He creates this world not out of need, but out of abundance. He does not need us to complete Him. The Scriptures present God as someone who created out of His own good pleasure. It's not as though we're watching Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger and he says, you complete me. I'm forgetting the reference to that movie right now. What is that movie? Jerry Maguire. Wow. You complete me. Famous phrase, right? 
That's not what creation is. When God creates human beings, it's not out of a desire to complete Himself. He is self-existent. He already was. We don't fill God's cup. His cup runs over into creation. Out of an abundance of His love, we fit into His story. We need to know this as well. God is one. He is one, but a complex being. He is one. Here He's identified as one being. Certainly Israel have always understood the story of God to be the story of one God, the Shema. The old saying that was said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 over and over again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They believed in one God, and here He is one God. And yet, His oneness is complex. Already in the first two verses, we have hints about that. First hint being this, the word for God, even though it's a singular word, is in a plural form. Elohim is a plural ending. Already we see also that God is God who's creating and also has a Spirit of God. We don't have a full doctrine here of the Trinity. We, don't have, we only have hints that later the, the whole story will tell us, but we know that God is one and yet His oneness is complex. We also know that God is the only Creator. The word to create here in the beginning God created is only and ever used of God. There are many words in Hebrew to talk about creation, making, doing. But this one is reserved only for God, showing us He is the only true Creator. We create only out of the things that He has created. So there's some things to believe, but there's also some things to reject. Number one, obviously, atheism. God is there. In the beginning, God. Atheism believes that there is no God. Number two, things to reject. Philosophical materialism. What is that? The idea that the sum of everything in this universe is matter and energy existing in space and time. Matter and energy existing in space and time. That's everything that can be said about the universe. And yet, God is there. And God, as the story will show us, is neither matter nor energy, nor exists in space nor in time. We also reject what's called pantheism. This idea that God and nature or God and creation are one and the same and there's, there's kind of a unity to the whole earth in such a way that God is present in all the objects. But here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a distinction between God and His creation. Even agnosticism, this idea that God may very well exist but we cannot know Him and there's nothing certain that we could say about Him also must be rejected because in verse 3 and following through the rest of the Bible, God speaks. This God is not just a creator. This story is not just an origin story. It is meant to tell us what God wants us to know about Him. He reveals Himself. And that leads us to our second point this morning. God is there, 
God is not silent. He's not passive. He wants us to live and be a certain way in the world. Verse 2, the middle says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God is not passive. He does things. He does three things here. He breathes, He hovers, and He speaks. He breathes. It may not be very obvious to you, but the word spirit, the spirit of God, is the same word as breath or wind, and it can be translated any one of those ways, and they translate it spirit here, which is good, but when we look at other parts of the Scripture, we see that the other parts of Scripture say that creation was like a breath of God. Psalm 33 would be a good example. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. God breathes into creation, meaning what? That He gives His life to this world. He also hovers. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word is the same word that's used elsewhere in Scripture of an eagle hovering over its young. He hovers over creation. What does that mean? It's hovering in care. It's not hovering in a sense to control or to make sure that we stay in line, but like an eagle hovers over its nest in order to provide for its young. God hovers over this creation. He cares about it. And thirdly, He speaks. Let there be light, and there was light. This world is made by the Word of God. He speaks into existence. And therefore, in another sense, He speaks and summons us to follow Him, this Creator. And so we see that the Scriptures tell us He is there and He's not silent. The Bible isn't just a record of origins, as if to say, let me describe as best as possible and maybe with the most poetic terms, how it might have all come about, it actually has a point. It has, a, it has a, a, a way for us to respond to it with belief or with rejection. God speaks. And the question, of course, is do we listen? It's a unique thing, this Scripture. It's very unique. It claims, like no other book does, to be the true story of the whole world. Very unique. Mike Goheen in his book, the drama of Scripture. If you're looking to understand the Bible and you want to know about um, how it all fits together, I recommend that book, The Drama of Scripture. And in that, he tells a story at the beginning of a Hindu man who was reading the Bible for the first time, and he, he says this about the missionaries who had brought the Bible to him. He says, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. In any way, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find your Bible in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. 
This is a man who was not a Christian and didn't become one so far as we know. But he says this is unique. I don't see anything else like this. And I love that, that this is an interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. He sees, even at the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and He spoke. That means we listen to Him. We follow Him. The rest of the Scriptures are about revealing who this God is. He's not silent. He doesn't leave us in mystery. Certainly there are mysteries, but it's not as though we cannot know Him. We can We believe that He not only is, but that He is knowable. He's not silent. And we follow Him. So as we close this morning, why should you listen when He speaks? Why should you accept the beginning of Genesis not as an argument, but as a given? That the existence of God is there and that it cannot be reasoned otherwise, and that this particular God in the way that He reveals Himself is the one you should follow. I mentioned some of the reasons already. They are good reasons. It's beautiful. This story is beautiful. The perfectness of Genesis. It is a perfect book. It is a fascinating book. It is a compelling book It is one that has fascinated generation after generation. PBS specials, you know, you name it. We are obsessed with this document. Even in my class of Hebrew in college, when I was having a visiting professor from Yale who was speaking about Genesis chapter 1 and who was not himself a Christian and yet taught in religious studies at Yale, and he looked at us and he says, when I read this, I am in awe. And you could see he was in awe. It's beautiful. Unique. It's unique. As we've just said. Nothing else like it. It's compelling. Something about it that makes us want to lean into it. You know, those are good reasons that it's beautiful, it's compelling, and it's unique. But it's not the best reason to take it as a given that God is there and He is not silent. The best reason is because what we see in these first three verses is in fact the same story that then continues throughout the Scriptures. Over and over and over and over again. And that is this. That God brings order out of chaos by inserting Himself into the chaos. Over and over again. Men fail. God redeems. He comes into their chaos and He redeems and then they walk away from Him and He brings them to the promised land and then they walk away again and and enter into the chaos of exile and He brings them back again all the way to Jesus Christ who came into the world. We call that the incarnation. That Jesus, God took on flesh. God Himself came amongst us. And what was that other than God inserting Himself in the midst of chaos? The chaos of our sinful world. The world that we have brought about through our own sin. 
The chaos of our own personal walking away from God. The chaos of wars and rumors of wars. The chaos of injustice. The chaos of things being so broken beyond repair seemingly. And in the middle of that, Jesus Christ comes as the perfect person and He brings order to that chaos. And in that moment when He comes, the Scriptures say there was a second act of creation. In the beginning, God created. And when Christ comes, and when you receive Him, there is another act of creation. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You are made new again out of the chaos that is in your own heart. Order is brought. A right understanding of the world is put within you. And we know that that's the same God who does it, 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That same God of Genesis 1, 1-3, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shines Christ into our hearts and there is a second creation. And so we can know this morning, not just because this is beautiful or compelling or unique, but because Christ has shown into our hearts and therefore we now know that not just intellectually and not just philosophically and not just scientifically, we understand the origins of the world that God is there and He is not silent. We understand that He is here. He's present with us. And He is not silent. He speaks into our lives so we know how to follow Him and how to walk with Him. And so this same God who is here, who created everything, creates new hearts, new spirits within us. And that is the reason that we accept Genesis 1, 1-3 primarily, not as an argument or something to prove, but something to believe and then seek to live out of. Let's pray. Thank You that in Christ we are a new creation. That You have said, let light, let there be light in us. Those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. It's Jesus Christ. We pray that You would help us to illumine Him before us again today, Father, Son, and Spirit. That You would help us be born in You again today. And see You not only as the God who is created everything, but who has created a new heart and a right spirit within us. Would you give us the ability to live out this week knowing that you are not just true, not just correct philosophically, but you are there with us. And you speak in our whole lives can be given to knowing what you say. Help us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.